Welcome to a brand new episode of Cold Chinese Food. I am your host, Aisha Redux. Today we are talking good food and good allyship. Food is love, food is comfort, and food is healing. In these convoluted times of racial strife, good food and good allyship is needed. So let's talk about it. Today I am joined by the marvelous Diane Sanfilippo, chef and business owner, New York Times bestselling author. She's an ally. She's a big supporter of my book. She posted it. She recommended it. She's attended my webinars. She's wrote reviews. She posts conscious content side by side with her amazing food posts. Thank you for supporting Stupid Black Girl. I really appreciate it. And I'm glad I can tell you on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. That was such a warm welcome. And you were so on top of it with my last name, which like people love to stumble over. It's the long Italian last name. Uh-huh. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to chat Thank with you. you. Cold here. Chinese food. What an awesome name for a podcast. <laughs> I love it. Yes. I mean, I wanted to, to you know, it just kind of introduced another side of me. Stupid Black Girl is just kind of very literal. It had to do a lot with just, you know, attacking this microaggression and, and the book and mm-hmm. the narrative. And cold Chinese food has to do a lot more with kind of like my identity as a creator. And cold Chinese food is something that has literally sort of always been on the side of my creating process. It's me just being on the couch, passed out from just working and, and waking up and working and waking up. And then there's cold Chinese food right there. <laughs> <I love it. laughs> your page, your Instagram page is, is so exciting and, and savory. There's colors. There's cuisine. It's, it's just like it's happy. It makes me happy. Like yesterday when I was like, you know, going through your page and stuff to kind of like, you know, get some ideas and stuff to talk to you about. I was like, wow, the colors. It's so bright. <laughs> so what's your what's your food background and your food philosophy? So I think my background mostly starts from growing up around parents who cooked mostly my dad, who's, you know, the Italian part, people often will joke, Oh, you're Italian mother. I'm like, well, not in this case, in this (laughs) case, my mom's a German Jew. And I think when she married my dad, it was this moment where she thought, okay, great. Well, I'm going to cook Italian food now. And so I always woke up to, we called them noisy smells because you would just wake up and you wouldn't hear it, but you would smell it. Oh, that's a great term. Oh, that's a great noisy. I'm going to start using that. Okay. (laughs) You know, it's like you're cooking onions in a pan and Mm -hmm. it smells amazing and it's just onions in some oil, maybe, you know, but they'd be cooking. My dad would be cooking tomato sauce. We didn't call it gravy. We called it tomato sauce. And that smell would kind of permeate my clothes. I would leave the house and smell like tomato sauce on the stove. So (laughs) I think really my food story started with that and then evolved over time into this collision of health and food, because many years later, learning about the health or ill health of family members over time, uh, you know, there was a lot of cancer on one side of my family. Later, I found out there was a lot of autoimmunity on the other side of my family. And so back around 2005-ish, maybe 2006, seven, somewhere around there, I started getting into the cross-section of nutrition and health and learning that, Hey, the food that we eat could actually impact our health. I mean, now that sounds 
duh. You know, it sounds <laughs> so obvious. But think about how things were back in 2005. We just knew of this like low fat or not. Like there was so little in terms of how food impacts our health, at least to me, you know, I was in my early twenties. And so that was kind of an aha moment that if I could eat a certain way, maybe I could prevent cancer or, you know, different things like that. Not, not really talking about getting into the nitty gritty of, you know, um, this will never happen to me. Just what can I do? You know, I knew, okay, if you don't smoke cigarettes, you'll probably not get lung cancer, but maybe you will. But you know, it's just those little things of like, how can we feel more empowered with the food that we're eating? And so that's really where the background and the collision of all of this became a career for me because I love to cook. I love food, as you can see on my Instagram. Oh, of course. These <laughs> days, I don't really, I don't talk as much about a lot of the health because I've done that for a decade and I'm a little tired okay. of talking about the nitty gritty parts, but I love food. I love good tasting food. And I just want it to be healthy by default. Like I want okay. to use really high quality ingredients and teach people how to make their food at home taste really good and look really good. So to that point about colors, mm -hmm. bright, colorful food is so important to me. I just feel like it's everything. That's great. So it's, it's healthy, good, appealing food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just yeah. really flavorful. You know, I think okay. a lot of people feel like they're not good cooks and it's, they're probably not because they're not <laughs> seasoning their food, Yeah, you know, and they realize, and they watch me in an Instagram story and they're like, Oh, that's how much <laughs> seasoning you use. I'm like, yes, dear, please <laughs> shake that again. You know, a little bit more. Yeah. I, I hear you. I mean, I, I, I grew up in a West African home and you talk about no noisy food, like noisy smells like that's just a big part of my life and I feel like as much as we we feel like we've heard about you know nutrition and how to eat it's still something in like you know parts of of the world and you know cultures that I'm from that you can't hear enough you know yeah my father had diabetes my mom has high blood pressure so when you talk about seasoning <laughs> there's like that's the one thing we just gotta I'm like mom like you know the 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 what's it called the maggi cubes and the sasson that's actually salt she's like it's not <laughs> salt though it doesn't say salt i'm like it's still salt it's sodium so that's yeah funny. um <laughs> so tell me a little bit about so it's paleo he like heavy hmm. but um right? i would say originally mm -hmm. about a decade ago that was again sort of the cross section of where i landed i was mm -hmm. studying nutrition and I had this feeling or this sense that we should eat like our ancestors. And I was thinking grandparents, great grandparents level. And then when I learned about this idea of, well, what about all of our ancestors as humans, like going way, way back? Like what is the ideal human diet, not just Italian, German, et cetera, because also recognizing that many of us are not from one lineage. You know, I'm not just Italian. I have all these different things mixed together. And so if my people from Italy were mm -hmm. eating certain foods, well, the other half of my people from Germany were eating different foods. And so I had been thinking about that. And then when I learned about this concept of, well, can we go further back to what is appropriate for kind of just base level, all humans? Um, so that was really where I started diving in. But over the last decade, I've definitely, pun intended, evolved my point of view to realizing that, you know what, 
even if some of these foods might not be ideal for taking up the bulk of our plate, I'm not somebody who fills most of my plate with grains, for example, Mm -hmm. I'll lean more on vegetables and protein like meat. Um, That's just something that I'm still going to include, even if 10 years ago, I didn't. So I'm somebody who is definitely open to learning and adjusting the way that I teach things. I don't like for things to become dogmatic. I don't like for food to become religion because then ultimately what happens, and this is something I'm learning a lot more about in this sort of attempt to be a better ally is how just alienating, um, and how elitist it can be to Uh. look only at eating, you know, saying never to eat grains. Well, they tend to be the least expensive thing. And they can be a healthy food in the context of, you know, what else can we adjust around it? But anyway, that's where I started in terms of my career, but where I'm at now, I pretty much eat gluten-free. When I was kind of thinking about this conversation, I was trying to find like my own intersection of understanding what you do, food, how much I love food and, and race. And the word you, you brought up was elitism. And that is huge. And it's something that I overlooked in living in the South Bronx and, you know, ha- having had like moments, you know, in big portions of my life where I'm just kind of I decided to dedicate myself to health and and doing my yoga and like my neighborhood is like fried chicken spots. And then there's like sushi in the supermarkets. But I don't think they they like I feel like that sushi's been there for a while. You know, I feel like that sushi's been sitting there just like this cold Chinese food, you know, like I want that. But I yeah, don't know. I don't even yeah. know, you know, so that's something that I, I'm definitely interested in exploring. And I know that there's like a, a ton of documentaries that go into that. So mm-hmm. that's that's super important. It's almost like uh, that's part of like a systemic you know, part of the whole systemic tree, you know, but that we don't really pay attention to. Like, you know, if I if I do want to be this healthy downtown South Bronx girl, how do I do it? <laughs> you know, yeah. how do I do yeah. it? <laughs> I mean, I think, too, this elitism thing, there's so many angles to it. Part of it is accessibility of food. Like you just said, you know, you want to be healthier, but what's around is X, Y, Z, you know. Um, part of it is, and I'm not, I don't have the depth of knowledge to get into, you know, government subsidies and all of that, but thinking about why are vegetables and, you know, straight up protein, like chicken or steak, why are those so much more expensive than the processed food that's on the shelf? Because ultimately that food going through a process should end up being more expensive Mm -hmm. than just real whole food. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, and this is where it does become this elitist and just for lack of a better term, white supremacist capitalist structure that it, and please, I only really have just had my, the top of my head blown off about all of this in the last (laughs) like two to five years even. So when I talk about this stuff, if you've got white women listening, I'm like, I am literally one step ahead. If that, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? It's not like I have been doing this for decades and have been aware of all the social inequities and injustices. Like I, it just cracked right open, but I feel like I was, I'm the kind of person who was primed to care about this so much because that's my personality. Um, But I think that there's so many parts to it. And it's definitely something I struggle with creating a food brand that is sort of this 
it's a specialty food, organic, you know, it is, it's elitist in a lot of ways. It's not affordable and accessible to everyone. It's not a brand I'm at this moment thinking or know can get, you know, across the country and be in a place like Walmart where a ton of people can find it and access it. Uh, even, you know, Target or even other grocery stores. Like, I don't know if I can do that or if I want to. It's not actually even your, your job, actually. You know, like, what's that? it's not really your your role. It's it's the government's role. It's a collective effort that should be implemented right. by, by the higher I'm ups, such a small know? brand compared to a lot of these others where I'm like, well, what are these companies doing that could make a big impact? But then it it is still part of my responsibility to say, okay, well, what are we generating with this? Who are hmm. we employing? Are we paying people fairly are we looking to you know work with vendors who are you know um taking into consideration all kinds of things like this you know and not just capitalism for the sake of it and just making money to line our pockets like how do we find other ways to benefit communities and and anyone who really needs help aside from just this company that we're building so anyway it's just it's something that I'm trying to dig into more as I figure out also how to build this business. Cause I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just figuring <laughs> it out, you know, every day. I yeah. mean, that's, that's the natural organic way. And also, I mean, especially with these times you're trying to bring allyship and you're trying to bring, you know, what you can do in, into, into the equation. And yeah, I mean, we're all sort of navigating. We're all sort of navigating. Cause it's, it's a new reality, like being an ally, or being, you know, a conscious person 10 years ago, 20 years ago versus now, it's it's a whole different thing. Before we get to that, I want to get your thoughts on this term foodie. <laughs> Everyone throws the term foodie around so loosely. What is a foodie to a chef? Okay, well, first of all, I'm not a trained chef. So okay. if someone's an actual legit <laughs> culinary school trained chef, like I didn't just name myself that. So if anybody's feeling offended, um, you know, like I'm a home cook, I've written some cookbooks and there's that. Mm -hmm. um, to me, I think this topic or this uh, term is interesting because I was listening to Asia Barber the other day and she was like, yeah, we all like food. So calling yourself a foodie is just ridiculous. Like everybody likes food. I'm like, okay. I mean, I'm not going to comment back and like have an mm -hmm. argument. I have mad respect for her. But what's interesting is I have been around and tr like traveling with people who I would say are not foodies, meaning like I will seek out the place to eat and plan the day around that. Like that's the focus. <laughs> wow. See, you're yeah. laughing, but like that to me, you know, it's like, I don't know if people call it gastro tourism. I mean, I literally do that in my own city. Wow. You know, where are we going to eat? And mm -hmm. then, well, we can go for that hike or do that other thing because it's on the way to the food. So I think part of it is like, do you literally plan your day around food or is food just a thing that kind of happens by default on your way to the rest of your life? Uh. For those of us who consider ourselves foodies, it's like the most important part of the day. And also always trying to I think find like, what is the best kombucha? You know, I'm going to try a bunch of them. I will be an early adopter of a new brand to try it, but then I will quickly let you know that one's not the best. And I think some people just, 
you know, there's, I'm not a fashionista. So mm-hmm, what do you, mm-hmm. what's a fashionista? I don't oh. know, but it's not me. I'm here in my <laughs> sweatpants every day, mm-hmm. you know? So I think there are people for whom food is fuel or they like good food, but like to seek it out, to tell other people about it, to know what makes it better. I don't think that's everybody's favorite thing to do. Again, even if you enjoy it and can appreciate it and it tastes good to you, the hunt or the development Mm. of it, or to, you know, go home and try to maybe recreate it or to sit there and say, what is this flavor? What am I tasting? I mean, it's just a, another level of obsession, Uh, you know, and it's just, yeah, that's, that's interesting as you're (laughs) describing definition. (laughs) It's super concise. And I needed a concise definition because as you were speaking, I was thinking about my mom who I guess fits into that. Like like everything is centered around food in a very neurotic way. And food is like also like her process of therapy and her process Mm -hmm. of like what she puts into food and the the presentation and how insane she gets when I'm like, whoa, it's still on the plate, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, and like, I don't want to waste a meal. Mm-hmm, like, I don't want to mm-hmm. go eat somewhere. And it's and this is not about elitism, because it, I mean, it's not like, oh, it has to be organic grass fed. It's not even that like it better taste damn good. And if it doesn't <laughs> taste good. Please don't like I don't want to waste eating on that. Like, give me yeah. a really good sandwich. Don't give me a mediocre sandwich. Uh-huh. But that doesn't mean it has to be gourmet or anything like that. It just means I really want it to taste good. Like make it the, a really good grilled cheese. If you're going to don't like half melt the cheese, all those <laughs> little details really matter. It's just a whole experience. You know, I like, like, I like that the word experience. experience. I like that word experience for me. Like the reason why I asked you, like, I guess the, the word foodie is because I didn't start hearing it until I really started hearing people from L.A. saying it. Mm. What's that guy's name? Kim Kardashian's friend. Oh, yeah. Jonathan Chevin, the food god. Yeah. He was like, I'm oh. such a foodie. I'm so, like, he kept talking about foodie, foodie, foodie. And then I, I thought to me, like, that meant a palate. Like, what's that Bravo show? Top Chef. Where you I think to- that's part of it, too. Yeah. I think looking for those excellent flavors. Like, I think that's something that people come to know, have come to know of me. And which is one of the reasons why creating food products in a certain way intense flavor is so important to me like Mm. please don't give me something bland okay I mean I get really upset if a (laughs) restaurant feeds me a salad that's missing acid and that's so snotty do you know what I mean but I'm like (laughs) I just paid you $16 where is the lemon no this is the stuff we all need to know so we know we're getting our money's worth like if we're paying $16 for salads we should know what a good salad tastes like you know what I mean? Like yeah, that's what it makes sense. So I think I think there's a lot of things come together. I don't always think every foodie is someone who also cooks, but I think often it is partially that because think about this like there are probably a lot of mechanics who are really into nice cars. Mm-hmm. They understand how it works. They know, you know, and there're probably a lot of writers who read other excellent writers. So it's like when it's partially your craft and you can find really good food. And I think a good example of this too are chefs who work at excellent restaurants often love food truck food. It has nothing to do with it being, you know, at a five-star restaurant. It's all about the flavor and the just like whole experience of, of eating it. 
I get it. I really get it. I love it. I mean, this is why you're here. This is part of it because like this is something that I definitely needed to understand. And I think on a, on a, you know, unconscious level, I needed to kind of tap back into that, that energy of that colorful, like why I love food in spite of the fact that I'm gaining all the stress weight. You know what I mean? So I need to counteract all of that. Like food is your friend, Aisha. I mean, it is, is it's nourishment. It's nourishment. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just feel like this last year, nobody needs to be upset with themselves. <laughs> right. This is who could even know what it's like to live through a pandemic. Anybody who's done it before, at least in this country, I don't think is alive. Right. So it was that long ago. That's so true. We'll give ourselves some grace. So speaking of that, this is my favorite part of I mean, let's let's talk a little bit about. Oh, let's talk about comfort food, right? If you could create a meal for the moment, right? One that feels like the hug America needs, what would it be? If you can give everyone in America this plate of like love and hug, what would it be? Okay, so partially this is totally legit and partially I'll have to just have a shameless plug because when I think <laughs> of what I eat that tastes like comfort food to me mm-hmm. it's usually going to be Italian flavors like I was saying when I would wake up to that smell um, it's a recipe that is in my first book and it happens to be the one that you could do paleo or you could add cheese I guess if you wanted to not have meat in it you could do something different but that is not something that I will teach you mm-hmm. but it's a bolognese bake recipe where we're using spaghetti squash as the base. And I know, you know, you, you might want regular noodles. That's fine. But this bolognese dish people, I think people often, so here comes the foodie. People often think that bolognese means like red sauce with meat. Yeah. And that's actually not what bolognese is traditionally. Okay. It's really you start with a mirepoix, so carrot, celery, and onion, diced up really small. You saute those maybe in some olive oil or ghee until they're brown, salt and pepper, some garlic, and just a very solid base of aromatics and delicious flavor getting cooked into that. And then you're adding uh, ground beef and ground pork. You could add other things if you wanted, but then you're cooking that all together, then adding some tomato paste and a little bit of either cream or coconut milk. I actually do coconut milk in the paleo book because it's usually dairy free. And then that simmers together. And that's a real bolognese where you're not doing this giant jar of red sauce, which is fine. That's just a whole different kind of dish. But the amount of comfort that comes from that, mm. it's, you know, it's simmered on the stovetop for a while. It it not only permeates the air because your house just starts to smell like, you know, yeah. someone's Italian mama's yeah. cooking. And then it's so comforting to eat. You can melt some cheese on there if you want. And that's actually one of the dishes that part of my business is a frozen meal delivery. People can order and deliver it, get it delivered anywhere in the country. One of the meals is this bolognese bake and it's been on the menu. I think it's the only dish that's been on the menu since the very first menu we did that has never changed or come off Wow! because it's so popular. And I, I don't think I could give it up from the menu just for a few months, even because I always get it. Um, And that's one that I reach for as a major comfort food. So, wow. I mean, bolognese, like, I think part of it, like as you were speaking, it's it's nostalgic. 
it, yeah. it's, it's the nostalgia to it. Like everybody yeah. can kind of have, everyone has a Bolognese moment, you know, yeah. like in, in whatever some the form, food is, it's yeah, that moment. It, everyone yeah. sort of has that, you know, the meat and like the, the meat and the mama, like this is a combination <laughs> of the meat and the mama. Like, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's and there, that simmering the over the stovetop, you know, or the it's usually onion that does it. Like you start cooking onion in a pan and someone's like, what are you making? Yeah. Like, I literally have not even started. It smells so good. So, yeah. So that's the hug, guys. Be sure to get get you a hug. OK, that's it. Yeah, because I'm there for it. I'm here for it. So good allyship, right? Allyship is defined as becoming educated about racial issues and supporting anti-racism efforts through action for, for non-Black people. How do you define ally, good allyship? How do you tailor it to, to you, what you're doing? And what has the George Floyd protests revealed to you about America? Oh my goodness, that's a lot of questions. Um, well. In one. Part one. Okay. Good allyship tailored to you. So good allyship, first of all, I don't know that we as non-white people can really be the judge of whether or not mm. we're doing it, you know? Okay. I don't think it's for me to determine, and I also don't think someone else will necessarily be telling me. It's just a matter of being committed to not giving up on it. Like, I think that's what makes it good and not performative is that you've decided you're listening and you're going to take action however that will be for you. Uh, so for example, I have some friends and colleagues and peers who have presence on social media, but are not really super comfortable with speaking in certain ways about this topic on social media. And I can respect that because first of all, not everybody's comfortable talking about a lot of things on social media, just because they're comfortable talking about food doesn't mean this thing they learned about a day ago, six months ago, whatever. Now they feel confident in being any sort of resource to tell anyone else what to do. And I'm okay with that because I also know a lot of these particularly white women, they have kids. And so what I watch and pay attention to is what are they doing in speaking to their kids I and mean, how are they leading by example, in the lives of the tiny humans that they're raising. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think good allyship, as best as I can define it, is really being open and listening and knowing that what makes a good ally is really not for the person who is the ally to define or determine, but to listen to what the people who need the allyship are saying matters and is relevant and what it looks like that's that's super interesting what what i understood of allyship and just kind of like even the term kind of being forefronted now versus how i how i grew up and you know people like my of my father's generations like they just never even believed that there was a such thing as a white ally like it mm -hmm. was always just you know there's a system and you have to be conscious of it and you have to be careful that's it. Like these people are here for themselves, you know? Yeah. So that's kind of what, what I grew up with. That's interesting. Yeah. But what you said about listening, I've, I've noticed through my experiences and talking and, and writing. And, you know, I write about it in my book. Listening. Listening. 
that's the root of it. And you mm-hmm. realize people, what, it, what people are saying to you when they're not willing to listen to you. They're saying a lot. They're saying all of it. They're saying all of it. And I would even just go so far as to say listening might be even 75% of it. Like if I'm telling you about my experience and you have a lot to say, but you don't know enough, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like you don't, you actually right. don't have the education. <laughs> you don't have the history. You don't know anything, but you have so many different responses and clapbacks for me. Cause I know you come in yeah. contact with a lot of people and you have, you have mm-hmm. uh, your fans and your supporters and just around yeah. you, like, you know. So I think, Back to the point of listening, when I really was diving into a lot of this, again, like just within the last few years, Rachel Cargill is probably the first person that I was learning more from. And it's probably how I found you. I don't know exactly how I came across your work, but (laughs) she, from the beginning, would talk in her Instagram, you know, posts and captions about how the white women who were there following, like this post is not for you to comment on. And it's so infuriating that so many white women (laughs) will not listen. And so I think what I've related to from the get on this whole thing is like, I'm a really strong, strongly boundaried person innately. You know, I'm an Enneagram eight for people who know that I'm a Taurus. I know you're into uh, astrology. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I'm super like bullheaded. I'm very... I'm just like a no BS person. I don't care if strangers on the internet don't like me. I'm not trying to be liked by everyone. I'm probably the least followed, least famous best-selling author. My first book was on the times list for like two years. And you see my Instagram following. That's really amazing. hmm? That's really amazing. It's crazy. But like that metric of how many people are following, I think it's really a testimony to how polarizing I've been for so long because I've not shied away from these conversations. Like when gay marriage was legalized and I'm posting about it Mm. and unfollow me. I'm like, there's the door. I don't care. Like who (laughs) I'm letting in my space matters to me. Like how I'm cultivating that space really matters. And so, um, so back to this question of, white women listening or not wanting to do something or not where they fall on this spectrum. I think it's, it's so complex. So I don't even know how to unpack this right now, but I feel like this is, let me just caveat this by saying this is not a pass for white women because I don't really have the patience for the nonsense that is the disempowered female. Like I'm just not that person, but I do have more empathy for it now than I used to Mm. having listened to a lot of stories and knowing that my life story is very different from other people's from a young age. I was somebody who through my experiences and the, you know, traumas or indirect traumas that I experienced, my lesson was I need to take care of myself. Other people's opinions are not that important. Do your thing you have to look out for yourself. And I realized that a lot of women, that's not the experience that they've had. They were very, have been very conditioned to get in line, societal norms, yada, yada, yada. Mm. Right. So all that being said, there's a huge percentage of white women in particular who they don't know who they are or what they want, how to show up in the world for themselves. So to expect them to have 
a reverence or a respect or a, an ability or willingness to sit and listen and learn from anyone else because they don't even listen to themselves. They don't wow. know who they are. So this wow. is me as a white woman saying, I get why a lot of other white women aren't stepping up to be strong in this moment because they're weak. They're not strong for themselves. So how do you expect them to be strong for someone else? And so that is a real problem that I see. Mm. But then that's where women like Glennon Doyle, as a white woman who's trying to get other white women to not be meek and timid and, you know, you know, cowering in the corner. Um, I didn't understand her at all like five years ago. And now I fully understand her. You know, she was on Oprah Winfrey stage and she was like, white women, we need to blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what is she talking about? <laughs> like, I didn't even know what she was talking about. And I also didn't relate to her. I didn't, I was like, what is all this nonsense with all these people who just, you know, oh, they married the wrong guy and they did all these things that they <laughs> thought they were supposed to do. And I just, I did not have empathy for it until one day I did because somebody close to me told me more of her story mm. and I could understand the full context of how and why somebody would make those decisions time after time and then end up being in this slightly disempowered situation where they don't even know who they are. So all that to say, I get it. I do, but I don't, I also don't really have time for it. But if somebody says I'm interested, I want to do something I want to learn. Okay, cool. But then I've watched some people say that and show up for about a month and then like fall off. And I'm like, you are embarrassing. Mm. You know, I, you have this in you to care. Why does it stop? Why do you stop caring about this? Why aren't you as angry as I am yeah. about this being things the way the world is? And I, I have to believe it's because they're not listening enough. Cause if they would listen a little bit more to what people are saying, how could you not be a little more, a little more angry? And I'm not saying that in a jerky way, but I just like, I don't get it. I really don't. Thank, I mean, that's really great insight. Like, you know, I'm all about just kind of picking up different pieces of experience and knowledge from different places so I can assess and learn things better. I think it all also falls under that umbrella, that patriarchy umbrella, you know, like white women, you know, needing to to feel like they belong or, or protected and feeling protected, you know, and being protected by by white men and what what does that mean? And and I mean, for me personally, I've had I, I've 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 experienced over time over the past few years. There's a difference between you know, an acquaintance, a friend, and like a white ally. You know, you can have white friends that are not actually allies. You know, and and I realized that more over time, like. And, and this is stuff like that, you know, friendships that existed over years. I'm like, how did I how did I not know this about you? How did I not know that, you know, if this day came yep. that you would sit there and just kind of like watch me or, or, or mm -hmm. sit there and argue with me? And I'm realizing, wow, I had <laughs> I don't know how many allies I have around me. But I do know I have a lot a lot of white friends that might not be as invested in the future of blackness or even my message. Cause I, I yeah. do have some people that, that I have been friends with over years that have kind of turned away from me with the book. Mm -hmm. They've turned away from me with stupid black girl because you know, the two parts of me, there is that crazy Aisha who's like, you know, her reality shows and going nuts. And then there's the Aisha that's super conscious and like, 
that Aisha who who is, you know, the child of African parents in America is not the Aisha that they want to fuck with at all. Mm-hmm. At all. At I all. think that's exactly what drew me to you, though, specifically was was that balance reality shows and going nuts. And then there's the Aisha that's super conscious and like that Aisha who who is, you know, the child of African parents in America is not the Aisha that they want to fuck with at all, mm-hmm. at all. I think that's exactly what drew me to you, though, specifically was was that balance, because that's how real people are. We have the frivolous things that we're into. And I love that about you. I love I love when you you. (laughs) record watching reality TV because it's just this is a real whole person who also has, you know, deep insights and very intellectual thoughts around what's going on in the world in a. Um, with a perspective that when I read your book, I could personally understand a lot of it due to the setting because I'm from New Jersey. And so I could picture New York and picture where you're, you know, the, the environment where you're walking around and, you know, the club scene or any of mm-hmm. that. Like I, I was like, I think I'm, you know, a handful of years older than mm-hmm. you. So understanding the time and growing up in those times, like, I love that, that there are these two sides and exactly what you're saying where, you're like, wow, I had these white friends who we just went through four years and an election that's super intense. And the last six months with, you know, I mean, it's so bizarre to me that it took that George Floyd moment for so many more people to wake up, but uh, white people, especially, but, um, or in particular, but even talking to some other black friends of mine and Brown friends who are like, wow, I just learned who these people were in the last month going through the election and either their radio silence about things or Mm. figuring out that they do support a leader of this country who is openly, you know, supportive of white supremacy. And like this whole, holy cow, you know, watershed moment of realizing who these people were. And, you know, I lost at least one actual friend not people following or any of that nonsense. I mean, that's like thousands of people. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. how were you here? This is not the yeah. beginning of me I, talking I always, about this. I always so- ask myself that with certain people that are just always there. I'm like, wait, what are you getting out of this? Why are you here? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Anyway, but yeah. And same though, having one friend where I'm like, wow, that it really does come down to just this for you and our, you know, core values don't align and I guess I guess we're not really friends anymore you know and that's okay I don't I don't want that friendship that doesn't feel like the kind of friend that I want the person who says they're not racist but but votes to keep this country in the status quo that it's been for four years like I'm not and also who just decides they're ending the relationship it's like it's interesting but anyway um to your point about white women maintaining the patriarchy and all of that. I think one thing that I've definitely learned also from uh, some classes and just sitting and listening to Ebony Janice. Oh yeah. I was going to ask you also like, uh, how do you go about educating yourself? I think this goes into. Yeah. So listening to um, Ebony Janice and Thea Monier and, and yourself, as you talk about different topics, I mean, learning that and figuring out that white women culture, like back when I took, I know I'm like, these classes and learning and it sounds so corny <laughs> but you gotta do uh, yeah but I'm super into like getting in there and hearing what's the perspective what is this person saying I need to learn and then 
sitting with it and like unpacking what this looks like in everyday life to say, you're so right, because this is what I'm living. And this is the experience. But when, when Rachel Cargill asked us like, what is white culture? And I'm like, I literally have no idea. Like mm. apple pot, you know, it's nothing. And then really figuring out the white supremacy is it. Yeah. Like, that's what we are as white people. You know, Italian culture is one thing. German culture is another, but like as white Americans, but learning and, and really putting my finger on the fact that white women culture is mean girls culture. It is not community. It's competition and mean girls culture. And it's the reason why, aside from that whole physicality thing I talked about earlier, walking into a big room of all white women is the worst feeling. Like, I don't want to walk into that room. It feels icky. I don't feel comfortable there. I don't feel like I fit in. I feel like I don't like everybody because they're usually looking at me wanting to not like me. And it's like, it's just this vibe of unless you want to walk in trying to impress everybody there that you're not going to be accepted or whatever, unless they can figure out how to put you into your place mm -hmm. because there's a hierarchy, it's not a circle. So that's something really interesting that I've learned that we don't have this community vibe of uplifting, but that's me. Like, you know, you had that experience with me. That was your experience with me. It was like, that's how I am. I'm like, I love this book. I'm not going to say it if it's not true. I'm not going to blow smoke because that's just, that's bullshit, you know, but I really had a strong response to your book personally. I'm like, I'm going to share this with my community. A candle Thank you. loses I nothing. I really appreciated that. that Do you know what really I mean? Awesome. No, but a candle yeah. loses nothing by lighting another candle. Yeah. And for, for whatever reason, I don't think that I mean, I'm sure there are women of all colors who, you know, are not communal and community based and want to uplift others. So I'm not saying it to be like, well, all white women do this and all women of every other, you know, race are not this way. But that's my experience that this innate inherent competition that doesn't feel good. And we need to crack that open as white women so that we can understand that like us winning in the absence of other people winning is not really winning. Like we can all be winning, whatever that means. You know, I don't even know what that means. You know what's interesting about that as you're speaking? I'm thinking about like black women that I know that have kind of like grown up feeling super alienated or being told they 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 talk white or being like less fashion forward, like saying that same experience about when they walk into rooms with certain black women. You know? So what's interesting about that is like also that that last essay I have in the book that talks about uh, 360 womanhood, how it kind of like goes all in hand in hand and like how women are towards women because of the patriarchy, you know, mm -hmm. because of because of this like fight we have for for desirability and how men feel that we owe them beauty. We owe it to them like a woman like you know, just kind of the remarks they make off the bat about a woman. It's its always sort of physical, what she looks like. And then the rest doesn't seem to matter as much. Mm -hmm. So we happen to kind of fall in line with that, you know. And I feel like with the women that, you know, I i, I have kind of fallen out with or, or you know, had, had like social distance from. <laughs> intentionally. Um, yeah, intentionally social distance from. A lot of it had to do with that femininity factor of loving to feel like 
they need to be in that room as white women and they need to be seen and appreciated as white women, which is like an experience of being a black woman. I, I, I never really, I never counted on that. I never put stock in that. I never mm -hmm. expected that. I never mm -hmm. expected to be in that room and be looked at at these people. Like I didn't really care. But I saw the dynamics of how important that was to certain women and how that carries over into quote unquote politic political, you know, political thinking and political ideology, even though it's not really political, you know, because we're talking about humanity. <laughs> you know, we're talking about people's lives. We're talking about people being being killed and, you know, and just how I guess it's, it's kind of terrifying to me how how people can be. I don't know if it's a programming or a veil, just so disconnected from that to which they can still argue politics in spite of it. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know I how people can separate that at all. Um, I totally relate to what you're saying that this culture of like white women falling in line with the patriarchy and, and thus needing to compete to look a certain way. I think the reason why I have had, we didn't talk about this too much, but like I've kind of always had this reception amongst other white women, like their initial response to me before they actually mm -hmm. know me just based on something they know of me has been negative. Ooh. And I think it's because they inherently feel that I'm not trying to be in line with the same thing they're in line with in that whole patriarchy thing. Like I am not trying. I've to always felt that same way too. I've do you know what I mean? That, that so whole like, autonomous I, thing. You know, I come yeah. into a scene and I just believe in myself in a, in a, an ability that I have that has nothing to do with how I look because I'm not the cutest one of whatever <laughs> it's going to be. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. Like that's maybe it's like not being cute growing up in a certain way mm -hmm. is like, well, I better figure out what's important about me because it's not going to be that. And so, mm. you know, it's like, that has always been the initial reception is like, I'm just, I don't have that experience of, um, entering into a space of white women feeling accepted, comfortable. Like I wanted to even do whatever it was that they were doing or that, um, their hierarchy for who was good or successful or whatever was what I wanted to be like slated into. And I think that you kind of hit the the nail on the head with the, that's the patriarchy and they're kind of staying in line with that. And I'm not like, I'm going to, I'm going to be the breadwinner. Like I'm, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take care of myself. You know what I mean? So it's a totally different vibe. Yeah. I mean, autonomy in, in a woman is extremely threatening. And the word that they use is independence. You know, oh, she's independent. I've heard men kind of use that word in ways that, oh, you know, she's independent to other men. And it's like, it's, I, I've seen that. And like, and it's like almost, what is it? What is it's It's threatening. It's scary, mm -hmm. you know, and it plays out a certain way. It plays out in, in what I'm opening my eyes to with this election and Trump and how, how much the patriarchy does supersede race sometimes you know yeah. and you know black men and how they're voting mm -hmm. and what they kind of feel they some not all black men 
not all black men, <laughs> the percentage that are voting right. for them and the people that feel like, you know, it's important to to kind of be men and be powerful or, or be white men <laughs> as black men, yeah. you know, before any type of equality is 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 reached to black women and, and where that leaves us. What did these protests reveal? I mean, OK, for me, one of the most disappointing things was, like I said, the performative allyship with the influencers and the corporations, the fakeness. It's like (laughs) you have to deal with what you're dealing with. You have to deal with all these like somatic symptoms of racism, being black and just kind of the trauma. And then you have to deal with fake ass people Mm -hmm. giving you fake ass shit. (laughs) And it's like you can't escape it. You can't escape it, you know. So, but what's one of the most disappointing things of this whole kind of unmasking for you? Well, this might sound sad, but it's like, I'm actually not surprised. So maybe it's disappointing that even in the face of, okay, like you actually saw it happen. You've heard that it's happened many times, you know, many times a month that people, black people are being killed at the hands of police for no reason or even for a reason but you know that situation ending and the person being killed is still not right even if somebody stole a pack of gum or whatever it is like all of these things are not reasons to be killed you know you know I think that's it's disappointing that even even with that even in a moment where the whole most of the world had the pause button pushed to look at this thing together. And I think that's why this collective moment happened the way it did. I think, you know, I've been listening to and witnessing many other lives being taken. And so maybe because this one was fully on video and because all these people were kind of scrolling their phones all day during this pandemic. Yeah. I mean, I think it's disappointing that more people haven't not only stepped up, but sustained and endured the conversation and really leaned into it. And I, I'm not saying that there's any way to do it in particular. Like you made a comment earlier that, you know, I'm, I'm talking about these things mixed in with the same things I always talk about, because that's kind of the way that I think is the most real. Like that's me. I think this matters. Also, here's the cinnamon toast I made. Like this is all part of life, you know, like to the point of the balance of your silliness with your Mm -hmm. seriousness, like, I don't think we all people need to say, well, now put a flag in the ground. I'm a social justice warrior and I don't talk about other things anymore. But I think that it's really telling and disappointing when it literally falls off the radar entirely and that person can't figure out how how do I make space to talk about this thing that I've I've learned and I said was important and somehow it's, it's fallen off. So, so that's a bummer. It is disappointing. It's disappointing to feel a little, you know, unsupported by other white women in the effort. But at the same time, I will say like the, the largest percentage of white women who do stand up along with me tend to be Jewish. Mm. Like, I think we have family who have been oppressed massively, Mm. who've gone through, you know, genocide. And like, we know that that's our family, like my family having had numbers branded on their arms. And so I think there's a, there's a relatability there of like, that's our people. So like, we're hearing things differently when we hear that story, whatever it is 
But yeah, that's a little disappointing. And at the same time, I'm extremely proud of a handful of friends who I have, who I know are committed, who we can message each other. Hey, did you see this? Like, how are you talking about this? What do you think? Like that has been a real positive and it has actually made me feel a bigger sense of that community and love and trust with that strong handful of mostly white women who, who have actually said, you know what, like, I'm going to talk about this regularly. I don't care if people don't like it. It's not about my bottom line. And, you know, ultimately learning that we have nothing to lose by standing up for what's right. And we have a platform and that platform comes with a privilege. And I, I think that to not use that in a way at all to talk about these things is a waste. Like what a waste of what we've been blessed with this many people's eyes and ears to just find a way to, to mention it, you know, even if you're not comfortable getting into the conversation to just float it past somebody's eyes really takes very little, um, to reshare something to your story that moved you, that you feel is important to just take that moment to say, you know, what if you have a few thousand people who might see it, you don't know when you're going to connect with one of those people, make a difference in their life and their heart and the way they think, the way they see things. Do you know what I mean? Like it takes so little that when people won't do it, that does disappoint me. I'm like, this yeah, was yeah. the least you could do to, to just use your platform a little Especially bit. Especially when you, you have a platform and you know, you have a power, you know, it's just your this platform fear. is a power and it, it, it's unfair because like, I think people yeah. like to keep it in a space where these are black problems, you know, and I feel like the people that are, you know, totally like disinterested or whatever. It's always like, oh, this is a, these are black issues. This is black history. Yeah. It's like this is not this is what's going on here. There's a way yeah. of they have a way of making themselves seem like it has nothing to do with them, <laughs> even well, though the country is burning. In front of I think everybody. they also cultivate a following around a certain topic and then are too fearful or don't understand how big of a privilege it is to have those eyeballs looking at their content. And, and again, how small of an effort it could be to make a big difference to just share something. And I, I think, you know, I'm not super into celebrity culture, but for how many years did I not really understand some of the philanthropy or some of the social justice work that, that some celebrities did? And I fully get it now. It's like, well, they realized they had a platform and money to say, I want to support this thing. I want to bring attention to this thing. And I think that's what we need to do. Anybody with eyeballs needs to recognize that you've got attention. Fine. Share your cookie recipe, but then share something that people can do to contribute to something that's not just about stupid cookies. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. cookies are great. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. But also like you have this platform. I just, I think it's just out of fear. It's out of, you know, this white supremacist capitalistic view of like, if I'm not maximizing every second mm. for my thing, mm. then am I not productive? And will I alienate people? I'm like, they can leave. Yeah. <laughs> and pe people away. see that. And it, it's either it's like further alienating, especially since like, 
I mean, there's there's a lot of I know black influencers and you know creatives that have just straight up called out <laughs> people in corporations, like you know, like you know, lifestyle coaches and people right. that are just like it's like, well, what what are you doing? Like, you know, you're utilizing these aspects of blackness and you know to your benefit, but right now it's it's just like some bullshit. So you end up in like in a progressive changing world. I mean, you can end up alienating yourself more. You know, because that's almost what happened with Taylor Swift in a, in a lot of ways. I remember yeah. a few years ago, they were calling her alt-right princess before she woke up and decided, listen, there are gay people <laughs> and there's Trumpers who are fucking with you really hard and you're their whole, like, you know, you're their whole idol. So I feel yeah. like that, you know, stuff like that where you can kind of stay in that box and be safe or you can just kind of just get crushed inside of that box and then, you know, and I feel like that's kind of what what can happen now. Like those numbers, those election numbers. Yeah. 74 that, million. If nothing million, else, yeah. that should tell people. That's what it told me. I got 75 plus million people I could be reaching. Exactly. Not the 70, 71, 72, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm OK. And frankly, I don't want you eating my good food like <laughs> if you if that's what you want the world to you be like you don't get my to eat my cooking. food uh -uh. people think that they are threatening me by saying i was gonna order your thing and now i'm not i'm like be my guest out the door go that buy is some crazy inferior product see, fine see, with me that that's that's the whole experience that i don't i guess get to witness because everybody knows i'm black and i'm black as hell <laughs> and i'm talking about that black shit but you as a white woman, it's like you you do have people that are like, I'm not fucking with you anymore. Like you posted my book. I remember one of the comments, some woman like gave some type of attitude or rolled her eyes in the comments. I was like, wow, you don't even know me, lady. <laughs> like, I don't. Did like, I respond? I'm sure I responded to her. No, I will tell people, people kind of stood up to and responded to her. And I was like, OK, well, then you must be getting a lot of that. You must be getting a lot of that. Like people that are just like, I didn't follow you to listen to black stuff. You know, I don't <laughs> like, know. I, just like, I really don't care, honestly, yeah. if if that's what people want to say, because I just I really don't care. I mean, it's I'm sad for them. I'm like, change the channel. Just flip on through, you know, keep it moving. Right. Um. All right. So, what's something you like? I guess resources and and uh, I guess things that you can recommend to white allies or people that are interested. Like, what mm. should they? What should they be looking at? What should they be reading? Like, just you know. So, a couple of things. I mean, I found it very useful to start out my journey, just following people and listening. And if something strikes a chord or feels like, ooh, but not me, you know, like white women, we get that energy of like, but I'm not like that. Just do not comment. <laughs> Just don't comment. Like the post, do the little heart, put a heart emoji <laughs> if you want to, but just so shut right. your mouth because I think white women, I, I'll say we, because I'm one of us, right? I don't want to other myself, but, and I have learned that in mm. the spaces where I'm learning across the board, but we feel like our opinion is always so damn important. Yeah. And it's not like, yeah. not on every topic is your point of view 
so important. Oof. And so when other people are talking about something that you really don't know a lot about, it's time to just listen. And I mean, a hundred percent I've related to every black woman that I follow who says, don't DM me. Don't comment like this. These are my boundaries. And then watching white women, <laughs> this respect disregard yeah. all of that. And I'm like, y'all are a bunch of clowns. And, and I believe a hundred percent of it because I have dealt with it too. And I have told people for years, don't comment like this. These are my boundaries. And then watching white women, <laughs> this respect disregard yeah. all of that. And I'm like, y'all are a bunch of clowns. And and I believe a hundred percent of it because I have dealt with it too. And I have told people for years, either not to DM or to Google something first. And people are like, you're so rude. I'm like, I'm, you know, so they've tone policed me. So as soon as I learned the term tone policing in the realm of, you know, racial justice, mm -hmm. I was like, oh, so that's what they were doing to me. They were like telling me I was too mean, or I should have oh, said yeah. it nicer. Oh, and yeah. so I'm like, I get it. But so, um, that's the first thing is to follow some accounts and learn, follow, I would say black women who are racial justice educators, and also some black women who are just leaders on a certain topic that you're interested in. Like not everyone that you follow, not every black woman is a racial justice yeah, educator. Exactly. Hello. Like I wouldn't consider you to really be a racial justice educator. I think you enjoy talking. I about... definitely wouldn't consider myself to be a racial justice. Right. Educator I think you either. enjoy talking about yeah the complexities or just the, the what's interesting or how it is affected in um, pop culture, which I think is super fascinating. I know Ebony Janice talks about that a lot too, like hip hop and all of that. But I think following people to get to know them as people, because I think it's so important. And this was why your book, I thought it was, I don't know, just was moving and interesting to me. It was like, I want to just hear your story mm. because when we hear stories, we learn that we're really not all that different, really even not. though you have this very different life experience of walking out the door to a world that receives you entirely differently. But, but in the cracks and crevices of that, like all these other things about who we are and the way that we live, even though our, our race says so much, like it sets the foundation for so many things. There are so many things that are just, we're the same. You know what I mean? And, and I think people don't want to take the time to see that like growing up and having these difficult relationships or whatever it's going to be. It's like our life experiences run parallel, but they have complexities that are so different. And I think it's both a combination of seeing our sameness and honoring our differences and respecting the differences. I think that's something that a lot of a lot of white women feel like, well, I don't see race. And it's like, well, that's like saying you don't see someone's full experience then. And that's so blind. That's being blind in a very negative way to the whole of someone's experience. And that's something that, you know, I've learned through this process. So following people who do this work as this work and just really listening, don't like, you should be embarrassed to respond if it's like year one of you learning and you're not in an actual workshop where they, the person is saying, what do you think white woman, you know, like where the, the question yeah. is to you as the white woman, 
otherwise literally just keep listening because plenty of other white women will respond ridiculously that you can learn from but don't let it be you because that's super embarrassing yeah Um, i mean i'm sure you've you've seen some of that stuff on my post some, yeah, some, some I mean, of these I, I watch it, but I think that that's probably the most important thing because yeah. I've just really learned a lot from those examples. And then, you know, paying for classes with people. I mean, it's not silly to say, I don't understand this topic. Let me learn from somebody who sees that this is a need. They're going to teach a thing, whether it's 25 or 200 or whatever you're going to pay to show up and dial in. We're all home. We know how to use Zoom now. And sit and learn something and really listen and don't say not me or I haven't done that or whatever. To your point, um, we started the call and you were like, I really want to pronounce your name right. And I'm like, well, I've learned something important about that, that like the importance of a name to non-white people. I'm sure there are some white people where that carries a really heavy weight too. But as white people, like mostly (laughs) I don't think it does. Mostly I'm like, whatever, it's my last name. I get it. There's a lot of syllables and it's not personally deeply offensive to me. I'm not part of, you know, an oppressed group aside from being a woman in patriarchy. So it's not deeply upsetting and hurtful unless we're friends for a long time. And I'm like, okay, I'm just bored with you not saying it right. Mm -hmm. But, but that's a totally different experience for someone whose first name is Kamala, for example. And it's like, there's so much gravity and weight and importance to a name and learning how critical that is like that's something I learned in a class that like it can be considered a microaggression Mm. to not or not even micro to not say someone's name specifically you know that's something that Ebony Janice she always like I go by Ebony Janice like she will say it over and over because she's tired of people not saying it the way she wants it to be said you know so I think all of that is really interesting and we we can't expect to like, not like tune in and learn. We have to really pay attention and learn and understand that this is people's lives on the line and everyday life experience, not just life and death, but like walking outside and feeling safe or not. To me that my goal with like my community online in particular, I, I want somebody who's not white to feel safe in my space more than I want more white people just Uh. following. That, that's that, important to me. That's that's what it is. That that's part of like that. I feel like that those are just little steps that people take to, towards making the world, you know, where we're going. What you're doing with your privilege is not holding on to it for dear life. Because I feel like at the end of the day, that's how you kind of exude white supremacy. It's like mm. I'm holding on to this because I'm winning. You know, that's yeah. literally what it is. Thank you for this talk. Thank you for your time. Thank you for this insight. Thank you for being so candid and and thorough. I, I I like the fact that you know even your answer is like you know you're not you're not just saying stuff. <laughs> you you know what I mean? Like I don't know how to do that. <laughs> no, yeah, like this is stuff that you know, like as a writer, or, you know, stuff that I I really definitely need to know and have a grasp on, and just kind of understanding. You're, under, you're explaining yourself as Diane and you're also explaining your experience as a white woman exer- observing other white women. And mm, I've what, thought about this a lot. So I think that's why. That's yeah. And th- that's what's important to me because sometimes there's like a whole lot of condemnation, condemnation coming from people that are not self-reflective themselves. 
and then they end up, you know, you end up kind of catching things that they're doing. <laughs> and then you tell them and they don't want to hear it because it's like, I'm the white ally. And, you know, it's kind of like a, it's a sort of archetype that they've they've assumed where they're infallible, you know. Mm. So, um, yeah, there's some of that, too. <laughs> Well, yeah, I've learned that. And I, first of all, thank you mm -hmm. for having me on the show. I mean, I, I definitely, I don't take that lightly. I mean, I feel honored Aww. that you would want to have this conversation with me. Like we've never met, you know, we've met through the internet mm -hmm. and I think there's a lot of those connections that are weird. And then sometimes <laughs> it's just, you, you're like, okay, I like the vibe this person has, whatever, all the things they're talking about. I'm a hundred percent open if I'm you know, moving in the wrong direction, or I say something that's just off, or I'm always open to asking like, Hey, to, to the women with whom I'm actually like friends now. And in, in kind of this realm of like, does this make sense? I mean, I'm, I'm having those conversations, like, should I do this or not? Like moving in this direction. But I, I mean, I've made my mistakes too, mm -hmm. and I'm sure I'll make more mistakes. And I think that's something that too, as white women, we just can't be afraid to make those mistakes. We can't not try because we're going to make mistakes and we can't be embarrassed if we do something wrong or someone okay. says, you know what, that actually kind of hurt me or I felt really uncomfortable with the way that you did that. Um, even if after we end this, if you're like, hey, you said this thing and I don't know, like I'm open to it because ultimately it's not about me. You know, ultimately the only part that's about me or us as white women is like, are, are we aligned? Like, are, you know what I mean? Like what, if the point of us attempting to be an ally or a co-conspirator is to be fighting alongside you and you're like, that was the wrong step, then I just need to hear it. You know yeah, what I mean? We I, just can't I, be closed I off to it. 100% agree. 100% agree. And sometimes for me, like just to a quick point, like it creates a sense of a disillusionment sometimes when I feel like there's people that are, you know, quote unquote allies and, and you know, liberals. And, you know, I go off about this a, little, a lot in my book, but I, I, I sometimes ask myself, like, are you doing this for black people or is this some type of like, is this some type of um, uh, aggressive you know, kind of response to to whiteness that has to do with how you feel towards people that then you're better than a response that, you know, mm. maybe some a black person with internalized racism might kind of behave towards black people, kind of distancing themselves towards people. Right. You know what I mean? Like sometimes I, I see that and I'm just like, do you even do you know black people? Like, do you like what do you what is this doing? Like, wh what's going on? Like, what is this about? You know? Especially something that you see a lot of that is just like the school systems and how segregated they are and just how people flip out when, you know, schools become integrated. Oh, there are black kids here. I thought you were helping black people. You don't want your, your, your son studying with them and going to school Bizarre. with them. There's a lot yeah. of that shit going on. And we have a long way to go. But listen, be, be better people. OK, that's it. To me, it's like just be better people. It has to do with the root of it all is empathy. And this is something that you cannot learn from books. This is something you just kind of have to be willing to to be a better person and make the sacrifices for your quote unquote country, you know? So and listening, listening to listen, other people listen. tell their story. And, you know, you kind of 
re-emphasize that earlier. It's the listening and believing mm. when mm. you listen and not trying to disprove someone's yeah. experience like that. And again, I think that was what I did find so moving about your book is like you are so vulnerable to share your lived experience. And that felt, you know, you couldn't have known what the world was going to be doing in that moment, right? Like obviously you wrote it so long before and then it got published. And then we were in this raw moment where everyone was suddenly paying more attention to the black experience, it, myself included, you know, I had been, but in a heightened way, of course, because of that and, and being able to sit and say, you know what, like, I, I, I'm not in a moment where I'm just trying to read books on racial education or whatever yeah. it was. It was like, yeah. your book came out, you had asked me about sending it months before, you know, and that's what landed. And I was like, yeah, yep. I want to read this book. And it was just that moment of like, I don't know, it was just serendipitous of this exactly yeah, the way I could just read your lived it, it aligned, experience. It aligned in such a way. It aligned in yeah. such a way. And it's because like I, I do I do look at the big picture of things. And I try to be as objective as possible when I when I make my assessments. And no matter how people internalize it, it, it is the big picture of things. And that's how I'm able to kind of see things that are coming and, and understand things that are coming. So I think the the book, just the way it took off, like Soon as I decided to write a book, the publisher, I met the publisher like three months after. Like I was expecting such a, a, a difficult journey <laughs> for, for this book, but it just happened because I guess it needed to come out when it came out. So here we are. Tell us about Balance Bites and the, the, whole, the whole food center and tell us about that Okay. in your program. Okay. Well, Balance Bites is a food brand. Now, uh, what started originally many years ago, uh, actually Balance Bites originally was a meal delivery business here in San Francisco. I started back in 2007, 2008, and then I stopped doing it as that type of business. It evolved into a blog, into a podcast. I had a health-oriented podcast for eight years. We did 400 episodes. It was called the Balance Bites podcast. So Balance Bites is a brand, really, that was kind of the early evolution. And in the last four years, I created a line of organic spice blends and later released uh, frozen meals that can be delivered all over the country, the spice blends as well. And then in the last several months, created a few gluten-free they're vegan friendly um, granolas and people are like, this is the best granola I've ever had. It's not too sweet and it's like the right texture and it's just so good. Um, and now just developing into all other kinds of food products because I don't know, that seems fun to me. So why not? Um, and I'm a foodie. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I say that mm -hmm. with, you know, tongue in cheek, but, um, and so now the shop it's funny. You talk about the book process where you're like, I don't know. I just decided I was going to write the book and then I got the publisher and it wasn't this, you know, struggle of it's not going to happen. It was like, you, you made it happen. You just pushed forward. You made that decision. And then more things kept coming in line. It's kind of what happens with me. And I know there's a joke of like, did you manifest it or is it white privilege? <laughs> like it's a little of both, but I, I don't know if you've heard of human design, but I'm, I'm into every kind of woo there is. So Ooh. Human design is like this 
way that your energy works. And I'm a manifester in human design, which is about eight to 9% of the population are manifestors. Ooh, and essentially it, it means that we are the people that um, initiate things like we're, we're fire starters. Like mm. I will start the fire, but mm. then my team needs to stoke it. Like I can't keep everything uh, going. I okay. always need people to carry things through the finish line, uh, but I will get it started. Uh, so I think that probably comes through a lot of what I do on social media. Like I'm just not afraid to start things, but, but so this shop really, I, I saw a friend of mine who had gotten some office space and I've been working at home for myself for about a decade. And I know you didn't ask for the whole story, but we'll just get the, oh, the yeah. quick version. <laughs> but I saw her in this space and I was like, oh my gosh, we've been home. We were you know, home for like six months, at least then during this pandemic. I was like, I need to change my environment. I'm going stir crazy in the house. I feel like I can't get things done and I'm not just trying to be uber productive, but I physically just like needed to change my space. And I was sparked. And then I was looking for space and because of the pandemic and because of so much retail space being open on this street where I am in San Francisco, I'm on union street for anybody who's here. Um, I was able to get a great deal on a lease and just great. Okay. Now I've got some office space and retail space. And I guess I'm opening a store like this whole thing. That's just so happened. awesome. It's, it's really great. I mean, it's, it's wild it's, it's bringing it all into like a real fruition post apocalyptic world. Yeah. At the, it's, it's like, to me, it's like everything's destroyed, but here's balance bites. We're still, you know what I mean? <laughs> Like there's it something feel, it does feel like, that. like a, a legit rainbow coming to life because my whole brand is like all a bunch of rainbows for because it's just what's more joyful than a mm -hmm. rainbow. Mm -hmm. But I, I love that I can do something in my local community. I love retail. I like helping people find a thing that they're going to take home and really enjoy and like have a moment with and like that's fun. That's my life. I grew up in retail. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It's, it all feels really natural and normal for me. And this street is one that I know for the last 20 years. And so it's just, I don't know. It feels really good. There's a shop that opened across the street recently. It's a grocery store. And then I'm selling other types of food products. And it's just, I don't know. It feels nice to do something offline again and to be in the community like here where this is a real business. This is not just this like online thing, you know, it's like a real you can come in the door. <laughs> That's cool. So, I mean, you're a big inspiration. This definitely inspires me. I have, you know, my ideas. I'll share them with you a little later at some point, you know. I want to hear. Yes. This was never in my head, though, by the way. Literally not until that moment that I saw my friend did I even. Th those are the greatest I did not things. think I was going to open a store. Those are the greatest moments. And, I mean, I'm looking forward to, like, you know, if I ever make it to San Francisco, because I know I'll make it to L.A. <laughs> you but, um, should come here also. I mean, you know, when the world is open, yeah. it's just another quick flight up an hour away. I'm I'm all for it. So thank awesome. you, Diane. Thank you thank for you stopping so by for some cold Chinese food. <laughs> cool. Thank you. All right, guys. Yeah. Next time. See you next time. Cool. Cool. <laughs> Yeah. Oh,
Thank you.